God bless you kids. <clears throat> I just love our kids, don't you? So thankful for our teachers. Our Grow Zone is really awesome. So grateful for them. Hey, two things before we get into the Word this morning. One is that tonight at 6 p.m. is um, a prayer meeting at the Silk City Coffee Shop. Um, you know, we've been praying, the churches in Manchester have been praying together on the first Sunday of the month for a, long, for a while now. And, of course, next Sunday is the first Sunday of the month. It's also Easter Sunday. So they moved the April 1st prayer meeting to tonight. And that's going to be hosted at the Silk City Coffee Shop at 6 p.m. tonight. It's going to be great. Friends, uh, just, yeah, I just can't encourage you enough to be there at 6 p.m. And then the other thing that my, my wife just told me, my, my sweet wife uh, came a little bit late this morning, and she um, just said that the parking lot is full, packed full. Yeah, that's a great problem. So you're not going to cheer when I tell you this. And mine's one of them. Like there are some taking up the lion's share of the spaces there, just our family. So if you can carpool at all, that's awesome. And second, if you can park tight, that's also very helpful. Think through that, you know. Like there's, I'm seeing lots of space between our cars. I could park another. I could park another car between. One of those smart cars could go between a few of these cars I'm looking at right now. Park a little tighter. And uh, that's the reason, too, really one of the primary reasons why we're praying uh, about two services. And uh, this, this, of course, next Sunday is April, you know, Easter. We're doing it for Easter for sure, but, but looking forward, as God continues to grow us and bless us, and He is, um, we're going to need to just uh, factor in the parking lot and space and so... Uh, just be thinking about that, and even uh, until we get to two services, um, in the meantime, it would really be helpful if each one of us would just take a special point, and you know, it's, it's a way for you to serve. You think, what can I do to serve others? Um, well, that's one of the simple ways that you can serve others, is by parking your car a little further out, parking tighter, Maybe park down the street at Salter's Pool and walk. It's only a quarter of a mile on a nice day. It's not a bad walk. So those kinds of things, that could actually be your act of service. And um, so just consider that. It's a great problem to have. I love it. This morning, this morning is Palm Sunday, and we're going to be in John chapter 12, so you can look that up. But I have a question for you as we start. Have you ever known someone who was truly humble, truly humble. And if you did, how would you describe that person? What, would the, what words would you use to describe someone who is truly humble? Just somebody yell it out. Let's, we're going to start with a discussion. What's that, Janet? Unselfish. Unselfish. Gentle. They're gentle. That's a good word. A calmness, they're loving, a good listener, a good listener, they're patient, huh, unconditional, holy, others driven, exactly right, a humble person, 
I like how uh, Rick Warren defines it in his book, The Purpose Driven Life. That was popular a few years ago, but Rick Warren says, uh, humility is not thinking less of myself, it's thinking of myself less. That was a as Rick Warren could only put it, the guy's a brilliant communicator, but that's a great quote. Humility. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, it tells us this, that Jesus, being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself. Humility is probably one of the most overlooked characteristics of Jesus. Because we think that if we were God, we wouldn't be humble. If we were God, we certainly would not die for the sins of the human race. And yet that's exactly what Jesus did, didn't he? He never once exercised his rights as God. He never once claimed special privileges because I'm God. And yet, Jesus is God the whole time. It it would be like this. Let's say you are a billionaire, but you have a, a real desire to minister to homeless people. You really care about the plight of homeless people, and you want to do something about it. And so you feel like you need to identify with homeless people. So, so you determine that for a period of time, you're going to set, apart, set aside your billions, and you're going to just live on the streets in order to identify with homeless people. And so, so to do that, you don't ever utilize the resources that you clearly have as a billionaire. So when you get cold, you stay cold. And when you get hungry, you stay hungry. And when you get dirty, you stay dirty. And you wear clothes that you got at the Salvation Army. And you sleep in the park, and you're under the bridge, and you stand in the food line, and you do everything that a homeless person would do, right? But you never once pull out your platinum Visa card to make it easier on yourself although you could. In a very small way, that's what Jesus did. For 33 and a half years, he walked this planet. He never stopped being God. He just never used his godness to his advantage. He set it aside. He humbled himself, like the Bible says. It means he made the choice to do it. Jesus chose to be humble. That's amazing. Nobody made him do it. Nobody bested him like somehow he had a competitor. Jesus made the choice to do that. That's astounding to me. Because given the fragility of the human race, you would think that humility would come naturally to us. And yet it doesn't. If you think about how weak we are, All it takes is a few snowflakes to stick together, and our whole life has radically changed. Heck, this past week, it was just a thread of a few snowflakes that completely changed life as you know it, and we think we're gods. You're cute. (laughs) And yet, given the greatness of God, 
You would expect pride to be his thing, but completely not. In fact, God is more humble than we are. And that's surprising. Those who claim that, and maybe this is some of you, you say, if God would prove himself, then I'll believe. Those who say that don't understand the humility of God. See, as, as a Christian, I have often prayed it, and I do. I, I want God to show up and show off. That's sort of a cute little saying. I say, come on, God, just flex your muscles, shake up a few mountains, and then surely people will believe in you. But in thinking that and in saying that, we are misunderstanding the humility of God. God is not a show-off. It's just not in his nature to do it. You and I would. We think if we had the power of God, oh, baby, you better believe it. But that's not how God operates. Showing off is something that we would do. We like to impress people. We like to steal the show. We like to take the spotlight. But God... Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. God definitely steals the show. But not because he likes to impress. Not because he has some need to somehow be in the spotlight. It's just that he's God. And by his very nature and by his very being, he steals any show that he's in, even if it's a cameo. Because he's God. But it's not because he somehow needs the accolades. That's us. Palm Sunday is just one of the many examples from the life of Jesus where God displayed humility. So Palm Sunday today, it marks the beginning of the end of Jesus' life on earth. We know that next Sunday is Easter Sunday. By next Sunday, he will have risen from the dead. This morning marks the time when Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and, and between this Sunday and next Sunday, Jesus will go through hell on earth, quite literally. But today is a high point, because today Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and the crowds throng around him, and they sing his praises, and they lay these palm branches down on the ground, as a red carpet for him, and they sing, Hosanna, glory to God, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I almost got Christmas and Easter confused. Uh, Hosanna, right? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're shouting and they're singing. It's an event that the Old Testament prophet Zechariah talked about. It's found in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 12. Look at this with me. It says, Zechariah predicted this. Zechariah lived hundreds of years before Jesus on earth. And this is what he says. Zechariah goes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, 
the foal of a donkey. He goes on to say in the text, he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I want a king like that, don't you? I want a king who's righteous. He, he's righteous, so he does what's right. That's, that's the, what righteous basically means. He does the right thing. That's a good king. I want a king who saves, who actually makes decisions that, that better, that save and don't hurt, right? That's a, that's a good king. A king who's gentle, who's not all into himself, who's kind. That's a good trait for a king. That makes sense. That sounds like great qualities. But riding on a donkey? That's not your typical ride for a king. Kings, kings ride on white stallions. Kings are majestic and powerful looking and regal. That's what a king does. But riding on the foal of a donkey, a baby donkey... That's an awkward ride. A man my height can straddle one of those. It's the size of a large dog with a round belly and a bowed back and short stubby little legs. And besides, kings, they come with pomp and circumstance. They march with their armies. They've got bugle corps and drums and and, and they pose next to their nuclear missiles to show how powerful they are. And they, they build opulent palaces to display their wealth and their splendor. That's what kings do. They don't ride donkeys. But Jesus is not your typical king, is he? Jesus. He's the king without an army. He wears a crown made of thorns. He hangs on a throne that's a cross. And he lives in my heart for a home. That's Jesus. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 12. I like this part. It says, return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. I love that term. A prisoner of hope? Indeed. Jesus is the warden of this prison called hope. And me, I'm an inmate. Captivated not by bars, but by a future. This humble king on a donkey has captured my heart with hope and he's thrown away the key forever. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Do you know, are you friends with this amazing humble king who rides donkeys and lives in hearts. Do you know this king? Because he's dying to know you. And by the time this day is over, I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive him. Please don't miss him today. Now all of that's intro. I want to take you to John chapter 12. To the actual story of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding on the donkey. 
And we're going to start, though, today with verse 20. I just want to read the first couple of verses. Verse 20. So this happened during this whole time. If you can imagine this crazy scene, a big mob, big crowd, laying the palm branches down. They're singing, they're shouting, they're dancing. Jesus is in the middle of it. With He's riding this awkward ride, this donkey. And all these people are around him. You get that in your mind? Get it in your mind. And then verse 20. Now, now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. So Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. So you see this scene, the crowd is there, and the music is going, and it's loud, and it's raucous, and it's crazy, and there's these Greeks that show up. Now, remember, Jesus is Jewish, and he's in Jerusalem, and so most of this crowd is Jewish. And so these Greeks are foreigners. They're, they're, not, from, they're not the hometown crowd. And they come from some faraway place. We don't even know where they come from. And they come to Philip, one of Jesus' disciples. And they probably talked to Philip because the Bible tells us that Philip was from Bethsaida, which was a Greek city. And Philip's name is a Greek name. He didn't have a Hebrew name like all of his Jewish friends. And so these Greeks might have felt more comfortable, maybe we don't really know the full reason why. I'm just speculating. Maybe that's why they came and talked to Philip. So Philip goes to his brother Andrew. Philip and Andrew go to Jesus. And then Jesus, okay, does this bother you about Jesus? Because it kind of bothers me about Jesus sometimes whenever he does this. He doesn't answer the question directly. Does that irk you? It, I'm like, Jesus, it's a simple question. Just say yes or no. We would like to meet with you, Jesus. Why, can't Jesus just go, well, actually, no, I'm kind of busy saving the world right now. Can't do it. Or say, how about 2 o'clock, the bagel shop, coffee, we'll have a little powwow. He doesn't do any of that. He gives this cryptic answer about wheat. What's he doing? So I was bothered. I had to get over my botheredness first, dug into it a little deeper, and then I came to this conclusion. Jesus is brilliant. You know why he's brilliant? Well, he just is. But he's brilliant in this scenario because he actually does address the Greek's question. And he does it in such a magnificent way. It's one of the things I love about Jesus. So one of the things that bothers me, not a direct answer, but one of the things I love is he always knows what he's doing, and it's great every time. <laughs> 
And here's what he does. First of all, he addresses the Jews that are in the crowd. Look at what he says. He says, uh, verse 23, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's a Jewish statement. In the Old Testament, you and I call it the Old Testament, they referred to the Messiah as the Son of Man. It's one of the names given. And so Jesus often called himself the Son of Man. Another way for you to think about it and me to think about it is Son of Mankind. It's a way for Jesus to say, look, I'm actually here for the whole world. And Jesus had spent his entire ministry focused right in the Jews. Remember, right, he's right there in Israel. He never really went more than about 30 miles from where he was born. His whole life and ministry was focused on the Jewish people. But now Jesus is about to go to the cross. You and I know what's about to happen, right? We know he's about to die for the sins of the whole world. Not just Jewish people, but everybody. And so Jesus gives this statement to his Jewish friends. Now is the time for the Son of Mankind. This is it. Here we are. We're coming to the end. The big moment. And then he makes this statement about wheat. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. And you and I get that. We, we understand the, 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 the imagery, right? That a, as long as you're one seed, one seed is good. But if that seed gets planted into the ground, if it, if it dies, then it will produce a stalk that will have more seeds on it. And if those die, you'll have more seeds and more seeds until... Finally, you could feed an entire nation from one grain of seed. But the key, the seed has to die first. The seed can't stay as itself. And so Jesus is alluding to himself naturally. He says, yeah, he is the seed. And as he dies, he'll bring life to the whole world, right? But there's something else going on there. Remember, Jesus is talking to Greeks. It was Greeks that came and had the question. And in the Greek mindset, a kernel of wheat, a stalk of wheat, was a symbol of life. You see, in Greek mythology, Demeter, the goddess of the earth, had a daughter who was abducted by Hades, the king of the underworld. And Zeus struck a deal with Hades. That every six months, Demeter's daughter would be permitted out of the underworld to come up to the outer world to visit her mother. And as a thank you gift, the myth says that Demeter gave Zeus stalks of wheat to symbolize the life that her daughter enjoyed, the fruit that her daughter would enjoy each time she would come up from the underworld. As though she was buried and rise, her daughter kind of was buried and risen again every six months, if you will, in the Greek myth. You see the brilliance of Jesus? Jesus wasn't ignoring the Greeks, he was talking to them. He gave them an image right out of their own thinking to say this, guys, 
I'm the source of life. What I'm about to do is going to bring you life. Isn't that awesome? Jesus is brilliant. He wasn't ignoring them. He was addressing them. That's when I had to repent of being bothered that Jesus didn't answer directly. I just find that amazing about Jesus. He came to die so that they would have life. And then Jesus directs it at us. He says, you and I basically need to be the seeds too. He says, look at what he says. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Jesus says, if you love your life, you're going to lose it. If you hate your life, you'll find it. Jesus is not telling you and me to have a bad self-image. That's not at all what he's saying. It's, he's using hyperbole, which was a common figure of speech that Jesus loved to use. And the idea is this, that you and I are supposed to love him and love serving others so much that at times it even looks like you hate yourself. I put others before myself. That, that, that the key to living is actually dying to myself. Stop making it about me. Start making it about you. That's what Jesus is saying. You see, there's three different ways to look at your life. You can look at your life through eyes of greed, eyes of need, or eyes of seed. Everybody tell me, greed needs seed. Split it back. Greed need seed. You can look at your life through eyes of greed. Greed says, I want more. Therefore, I won't give. So I will keep everything that I get. I will hold on to everything that I get because my goal is to have more and more and more and more. Eyes of greed. I want more, therefore I won't give. Or you can see life through eyes of need. I need more, therefore I can't give. Gee, I wish I could, but I just can't. You see, I have this bill, and I have this problem, and I have this issue, and the kids are here, and I've got all this stuff going. I just can't give anymore. Eyes of need. Or eyes of seed. The seed says, what I have, I give. It might be little, it might be much, but what I have, I give. Knowing that it will be multiplied knowing that it will go further than I could ever imagine if I would simply give it. So you can either be needy, greedy, or seedy. It's your choice. And Jesus says, look, it, you have the option here of hanging on to your life or losing your life for my sake and finding eternal life. There's two different words for life that he uses there in that verse. One is suke, one is zoe in the Greek. It's, it works like this. There are different kinds of life. 
A plant has one kind of life. It stays right there in the spot where it's planted. It enjoys its soil. But you and I as humans have a whole different kind of life, don't we? Now, can you imagine this being played out? Can you imagine the creator coming to the plant saying, Plant, I would like to give you human life. And the plant talking back to the creator going, What? You mean I'd have to leave this pot, this dirt, and trade all that for the chance to have love and travel the world and taste great food and enjoy friendships? Nah, I'll stay in the dirt. You would say, come on, silly plant, trade up. And yet that's exactly what Jesus is offering us. You can trade this life for abundant life. This life for eternal life. Creator comes to you and says, hey, you living the human life, how would you like to trade? You, you, you have all your human life with its stresses, with its shame, with its hurts, with its good days and bad days, with its ups and its downs. Your human life, trade that for eternal life. And by the way, eternal life starts now. It's not something you have to wait until you die to enjoy. Jesus promised abundant life now. But you know what you have to do? You can't have both. You've got to leave the pot. I, I, I got to say, okay, I'll trade up. I'll trade up. I want the life that Jesus can give to me. And I'm willing to let this other stuff take care of itself. I will trade up. It's the offer that Jesus makes. You have to die to yourself to get it. See, following Jesus... It's killing you, man. But you've never been better. You see what he's doing? Jesus is brilliant. Don't miss the irony of this. Jesus is in the middle of a crowd, a hometown crowd of Jews. And they are all, remember, they are all singing his praises right there. They are just having a great old time. They're partying around them, laying down the palm branches. And here's these Greeks that have come, and they're actually wanting to talk to Jesus. So you have these Jews that have completely missed Jesus. They've missed him. If you go to verse 9, what is it, uh, John 12, verse 9? John tells us that the Jews, they only came because they wanted to see Lazarus. Look at what it says. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. I'm not making that up. It's right there. Wait a second. I'm scratching my head on that one. The God of the universe is riding a donkey in front of you. The God of the universe 
raised Lazarus from the dead. And you want to see Lazarus. Come on. Is that not how we are? So here's Jesus' hometown crowd. They're all caught up in the fact that, you know, Lazarus used to be dead. You can hear all the murmurings. They're all, that's Lazarus. That's Lazarus. And there's Jesus. There's Jesus. That's Lazarus. Look at Lazarus. And here's the Greeks that have come from a faraway place. We don't even know where they're from. They've come seeking who? Jesus. Don't miss the irony of that. And Jesus is speaking to these guys directly. Ah, and I wonder if Jesus said these next words just under his breath. I picture the crazy scene. And look what Jesus does in verse 27. Well, first of all, back up, back up. Verse 26. Guess what you get if you serve Jesus. Jesus says, my father will honor the one who serves me. Don't miss that either. That's a really good one. The God of the universe will honor you. You walk into heaven to a hero's welcome. If you have served Jesus, died to yourself, given him everything. I'm not making that up. My father will honor the one who serves me, Jesus says. I'll take that. And then Jesus says this in verse 27. Okay, now we can move on. Verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. I don't know how do you imagine this being, this being said. I, I kind of picture Jesus saying it perhaps under his breath. Remember, the crowd has completely missed him. The crowd's gone wild. And these foreigners are there. And he's had this almost... a private conversation with these Greeks in the middle of this crowd and Jesus goes now my soul is troubled I mean I'm just and what am I supposed to say father save me from this hour no it was for this very reason that I came to this hour the humility of Jesus absolutely shocks me Because not once does Jesus on that donkey yell out and say, You people, you're not getting it. Not once. And so he says, You know, it's really not about me anyway. You see that about Jesus? It's not about me. I've just come. And look at his prayer. Father, glorify your name. That's what it's all about, Father. I came here just to glorify you. And so that's it. As long as you're glorified, Father, I'm happy. Even if this whole crowd is not getting it, (laughs) they've completely missed me and what I'm here to do. But, Father, I just want to glorify you. That's all that matters. Well, Father shows up. Look what he does. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. In verse 28, 29, the crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. That gives you a clue as to maybe what this voice sounded like. If you can picture thunder with words, 
that's maybe close to what it sounded like. So some are thinking it thundered. Others, it says, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus said, I love how John writes this. So you got the crowd. Oh, it must be, must be thunder. Maybe it's going to rain. Others are thinking, it was an angel. Jesus says, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Jesus didn't need the approval of that crowd. He knew whose father his father was. He knew who he was. And that crowd, their approval, it mattered little to him. He was all about just simply glorifying his father and obeying his father and doing what father told him to do, and that's it. Do you see his humility? Remember, Jesus is God the whole time. Never stopped being God. Just set it aside. And in humility, now is the time, he says, for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus, surrounded by people that saw him but didn't see him pursued by foreigners that wanted to understand him. Saying, Father, just, just you, you get the glory for all of this. It's not about me anyway. Saying this, I will be in the spotlight, but I'll be the one on the cross. The only spotlight Jesus took was that one. And when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus becomes on the cross. He becomes this, this focal point of history. He becomes this, um, this anchor in history. The best way that I can illustrate it is like when you're swimming at the beach you know how you swim and, and you can be having a good time and the, and the drift, you can drift far away from your towel if you're not careful. Because everything at the beach looks the same. The sun's the same, the sand is the same, the water is the same, the swimmers are the same, the sunbathers, it's all the same. All the towels kind of look the same. And unless you have a focal point that stands out above all of that, and you keep your eye on that focal point, it'll keep you from drifting away, keep you from getting lost. And so Jesus stands out in history as the focal point for all history for drifters just like us, showing you and me, here's, how you, here's the way back home. I'm the way back home. The only time Jesus took the spotlight was to hang on a cross to show you and me back home. That's this humble king. If you're waiting for Jesus to somehow wow you with a trick, you won't find it because it's not in his nature to do it.
It's more in his nature to die for you than it is to impress you. So we got a couple of things just in conclusion. I'll just wrap this up quickly. Aaron, give me some tunes. Set the mood. Here we go. Okay. Here we go. Just a couple of lessons. Five, actually. But they're short. The first one is this. Being excited about God is not the same as actually following him and obeying him. The Palm Sunday crowd was excited. But that's as far as their faith went. Only a couple days later, the same crowd was the one that was asking for Jesus to be crucified. So how deep does your faith go? Do you only get excited sometimes? when the warm fuzzies feel good and the worship's just right and the lights are just right, you feel good? Or does your faith take you into obedience to the unlikely places? Because that's what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to die to ourselves. It's the only way it gets, only way it works. Second, Jesus might not look like much riding on that donkey or hanging on that cross. But don't miss him. He's everything. Learn how to find Jesus in the unlikely places. Remember, he's a humble king. He's not out to impress you. But he does desire an intimate relationship with you. Third, your king rides a donkey. So what do you think you're going to ride? Sometimes we elevate ourselves above our own king. Your king is a servant. So what does that make you? I'm the servant servant. I'm the servant of the servant of the servant servant. See, the Christian life is about serving others. It's not about the show. The best part about what you, the best part about your relationship with Jesus is this part that nobody else sees. Fourth, Jesus used a donkey to save the world. You don't think he can use you? He could use any old jackrabbit. Just say yes. Say yes. Watch what he does. Remember, need, greed, or seed. See your life as seed. What I have, I give. And that's it. And I trust God to multiply it. And he will, because that's the law of the harvest. That's how seeds work. So give it. What I have, I give. And lastly, you can acknowledge God and still miss him. Many people make this mistake. They think that I believe God. I believe in God, so I must be okay. No. James chapter 2 actually says that the demons believe in God, and they shudder. So if you believe in God, oh great, you're right up there with demons. 
clearly it's more than merely assenting to God's existence, acknowledging that God exists. There's a lot more to it than that, my friend. Let me lay it out for you plainly as we close here. In Acts chapter 2, verse, 18, verse 38, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, a group of people asked Peter, they said, what must we do, Peter, to be saved? What do we got to do, Pete? And Peter said these words. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Break that down real quick. To repent means you change the way you think. That's what the word repent means. It literally means change your mind, change your thinking. So I need to change my thinking from I can do this, I got this, I can be good enough for God. As long as I'm a good person, everything will be great. To God is a holy God, and I have done wrong, and I need his forgiveness and his grace in order to cleanse me and in order to make me right, because I can't do this on my own. My thinking has to change. And then he says, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Baptism means I identify with Jesus. That's what baptism does. In baptism, we are, you know, we go under the water, we are buried with Christ, and we're risen again to a new life. Baptism is a way, it's, it's like, it's the Christian version of getting the t-shirt. You, you, you're identifying with Jesus. Jesus died and rose again. Doug Rouse died and rose again. I identify with Jesus. And if you haven't done that yet, you need to do that next Sunday. It's a prime opportunity for you to publicly declare, I'm Doug Rouse, and I'm a Jesus man. Unashamedly, unapologetically, I'm a Jesus guy. I'm a Jesus girl. That's what baptism is. So that's next Sunday. Talk to me afterwards if you haven't, if you want to. And then he says, for the forgiveness of your sins. Friends, we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Every one of us has. You say, I haven't murdered anybody. No, you haven't. That's great. I'm glad you haven't murdered anybody. But we've all sinned. God is a holy God. His standard is perfection. He, he demands perfection. Anybody here perfect? Therefore, every one of us has fallen short of the standard. Therefore, every one of us needs a Savior. Every one of us. I can't do it on my own. Some people try to do it on their own. But that's like this. That's like me and Rob going out to the parking lot. And, and we're going to each take a rock and throw it into the Long Island Sound from the parking lot out here. Now, Rob, he's got a little better arm than I do, so his rock will go further probably than mine. But the truth is, neither one of us is going to come close, are we, buddy? I might hit the neighbor's window. That's as far as it's going to go. That's the way it is. God's standard is perfection. Your goodness maybe robs a little bit of a better man than I am. 
Maybe he's got a few more good deeds than I have, but the truth is both of us fall far short of the goal. That's why Jesus came. We need the Savior. And then that last part, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank the Lord for that. Because the Christian life is impossible to live in my own strength and your own strength. I can't do it. This whole thing, this, this whole thing about being a seed and dying to myself, come on. That's impossible. I'm a selfish jerk. I can't do that. Are you kidding me? I need the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. I must rely upon God's strength every single day in order to live this life. And thankfully, He's given us. You see that, the word gift? Oh, I love that word. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. God gives you the gift to enable you to live this life. So my friends, if you have not yet received Jesus as your Savior, I want you to acknowledge him this morning. I want you to come this morning as we sing, come to this altar with me and begin your relationship with Jesus today. And there are some of us also that would say, yeah, I need to um, die to myself. I see that my king is riding a donkey and I'm trying my best to find an even better ride. My king's a servant, and I'm refusing to serve. <laughs> and maybe the Lord has done that work in your heart this morning. You're saying, yeah, I need to change some things up. I need to die to myself. I need to trade this life for that life. I want to encourage you to come this morning, and we can pray together about that. Oh... Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for, wow, thank you uh, for your love for us. I'm amazed, I'm stunned, I'm blown away by your humility, Jesus. Wow, wow, wow. Never once did you. Wow. The only time that you put yourself in the spotlight, you were hanging on a cross. That just breaks my heart, Lord, because you were hanging there for me, and I'm so thankful, so thankful, Jesus, for you. I'm the homeless guy that you left everything for in order to find, in order to bring me home. Thank you, Jesus. And I just invite you now, Holy Spirit, to do your work in our hearts right now. In your holy name we pray, Jesus. Amen.